Chapter 8, Part 3 of Haunted London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Haunted London by Walter Thornbury. Chapter 8 The North Side of the Strand from Temple Bar to Charing Cross with Digressions on the South. Part 3 Mr. T. P. Cook obtained some of his early triumphs at the Lyceum as Frankenstein and at the Adelphi as Long Tom Coffin. His serious pantomime in the fantastic monster of Mrs. Shelley's novel is said to have been highly poetical. He made his debut in 1804 at the Royalty Theatre and soon afterwards left Astley's to join Laurent, the manager of the Lyceum. This best of stage seamen since Bannister's time was born in 1780 and died only recently. Madame Lucia Elizabeth Vestris had the Lyceum in 1847. This fascinating actress was the daughter of Francesco Bartolozzi, the engraver, and was born in 1797. She married the celebrated dancer Vestris in 1813, and in 1813 appeared at the King's Theatre, in Winter's Opera of Proserpina. In 1820, after a wild and disgraceful life in Paris, she appeared at Drury Lane as Lilla, Adela, and Artaxerxes, and exhibited the archness and vivacity of Storis without her grossness. In a burlesque of Don Giovanni, as Paul, and as Apollo, she was much abused by the critics for her wantonness of manner and dress, but she still won her audiences by her sweet and powerful contralto, and by her songs, The Light Guitar and Rise Gentle Moon. Harley played Leporello to her under Mr. Elliston's management. After this, she took to first light comedy and melodrama, and married Mr. Charles Matthews. The theater was burnt down in 1830, and rebuilt soon afterwards. Madame Vestris herself died in 1856. That crowded little nest of shops and wild beasts, Exeter Change, stood where Burley Street now stands, but extended into the main road, so that the footpath of the north side of the Strand ran directly through it. It was built about 1681, and contained two walks below and two walks above stairs, with shops on each side for semsters, milliners, hosiers, etc., the builders were very sanguine, but the fame of the new exchange, now the Adelphi, blighted it from the beginning. The shops next the street alone could be let. The rest lay unoccupied. The land bank had rooms here. The body of the poet Gay lay in state in an upper room, afterwards used for auctions. In 1721, a Mr. Normand Corey exhibited here a damask bed with curtains woven by himself, Admission, two shillings and sixpence. About 1780, Lord Baltimore's body lay here in state, preparatory to its interment at Epsom. This infamous lord of unsavory reputation had married a daughter of the Duke of Bridgewater. He lived on the east side of Russell Square, and was notorious for an unscrupulous profligacy, rivaling even that of the detestable Colonel Charteris. In 1767, his agents decoyed to his house a young woman named Woodcock, a milliner on Tower Hill. 
After suffering all the cruelty which Lovelace showed to Clarissa, the poor girl was taken to Lord Baltimore's house at Epsom, where her disgrace was consummated. The rascal and his accomplices were tried at Kingston in 1768, but unfortunately acquitted through an informality in Miss Woodcock's deposition. The disgraced title has since become extinct. The last tenants of the upper rooms were Mr. Cross and his wild beasts. The royal menagerie was a great show in our father's days. Lee Hunt mentions that one day at feeding time, passing by the change, he saw a fine horse pawing the ground, startled at the roar of Cross's lions and tigers. The vast skeleton of Chuni, the famous elephant brought to England in 1810 and exhibited here, is to be seen at the College of Surgeons in Lincoln's Inn Fields. In 1826, after a return of an annual paroxysm aggravated by inflammation of the large pulp of one of his tusks, Chuni became dangerous, and it was necessary to kill him. His keeper first threw him buns, steeped in prussic acid, but these produced no effect. A company of soldiers was then sent for, and the monster died after upwards of a hundred bullets had pierced him. In the midst of the shower of lead, the poor docile animal knelt down at the well-known voice of his keeper to turn a vulnerable point to the soldiers. At the College of Surgeons, the base of his tusk is still shown, with a spicula of ivory pressing into the pulp. De Lautherbourg, after Garrick's retirement, left Covent Garden and exhibited his Idofusicon in a room over Exeter Change. The stage was about six feet wide and eight feet deep. The first scene was the view from One Tree Hill in Greenwich Park. The lamps were above the proscenium and had screens of colored glass which could be rapidly changed. His best scenes were the loss of the Halswell East Indiaman and the rising of pandemonium. A real thunderstorm once breaking out when the shipwreck scene was going on, some of the audience left the room, saying that the exhibition was presumptuous. Gainsborough was such a passionate admirer of the Idofusicon that for a time he spent every evening at Lautherborg's exhibition. Mr. William Clark, a seller of hardware, steel buttons, buckles, and cutlery, was proprietor of Exeter Change for nearly half a century. He was an honest and kind man, much beloved by his friends, and known to everybody in Johnson's time. When he became infirm, he was allowed by King George the special privilege of riding across St. James's Park to Buckingham Gate, his house being in Pimlico. He died rich. Another character of Clark's age was old Thompson, a music seller, and a good-natured humorist. He was deputy organist at St. Michael's, Cornhill, and had been a pupil of Boyce. His shop was a mere sloping stall with a little platform behind it for a desk, rows of shelves for old pamphlets and plays, and a chair or two for a crony. Thompson furnished Burney and Hawkins with materials for their histories of music. It was said that there was not an heir from the time of Bird that he could not sing. Poor soured Wilson used to be fond of sitting with Thompson and railing at the times. Garrick and Dr. Arne also frequented the shop. The nine o'clock drum at Old Somerset House and the bell rung as a signal for closing Exeter Change 
were once familiar sounds to old strand residents but alas times are changed and they are heard no more it was in thompson's shop that the elder dibdin charles together with hubert stoppelaire an actor singer and painter planned the patagonian theatre which was opened in the rooms above the stage was six feet wide the puppet actors only ten inches high dibdin wrote the pieces composed the music helped in the recitations and accompanied the singers on a small organ his partner spoke for the puppets and painted the scenes they brought out the padlock here the miniature theatre held about two hundred people exeter hall was built by mr deering in eighteen thirty one for various charitable and religious societies that had scruples about holding their meetings in taverns or theatres it stands a little west of the site of the old change the front with its two massy plain greek pillars is a good instance of making the most of space though it still looks as if it were riding bodkin between the larger houses the building contains two halls one that will hold eight hundred persons and another on the upper floor able to hold three thousand the latter is a noble room one hundred thirty one feet long by seventy six wide and contains the sacred harmonic society's gigantic organ there are also nests of offices and committee rooms in may the white neckcloths pour into exeter hall in perfect regiments in the strand near exeter house lived the beautiful countess of carlisle a beauty of charles i's court immortalized by van dyke suckling and carew she paid one hundred fifty pounds a year rent equal to six hundred pounds of our current money exeter street had no western outlet when first built for where the street ends was the back wall of old bedford house dr johnson after his arrival with garrick from lichfield lodged here in a garret at the house of norris a staymaker in this garret johnson wrote part at least of that sonorous tragedy irene he used to say he dined well and with good company for eightpence at the pineapple in the street close by several of the guests had traveled they met every day but did not know each other's names the others paid a shilling and had wine johnson paid sixpence for a cut of meat a penny for bread a penny to the waiter and was served better than the rest for the waiter that is forgotten is apt also to forget in cecil's time bedford house became known as exeter house from hence in sixteen fifty one cromwell the council of state and the house of commons followed general popham's body to its resting-place at westminster it was while receiving the sacrament on christmas day at the chapel of exeter house that that excellent gentleman evelyn and his wife were seized by soldiers warned not to observe any longer the superstitious time of the nativity and dismissed with pity in exeter house lived that shifty and unscrupulous turncoat antony ashley cooper earl of shaftesbury the great tormentor of charles the second and the father of the author of the characteristics who was born here sixteen seventy to one and educated by the amiable philosopher locke the wickedest fellow in my dominions as charles the second once called little sincerity afterwards removed hence about the time of the great fire to aldersgate street in order to be near his city intriguers 
After the great fire, till new offices could be built, the court of arches, the admiralty court, etc., were held in Exeter House. The property still belongs to the Cecil family. That great statesman Burley, Bacon's uncle, lived on the site of the present Burley Street. He was of birth so humble that his father could only be entitled a gentleman by courtesy. Slow but sure of judgment, silent, distrustful of brilliant men such as Essex and Raleigh, he made himself, by unremitting skill, assiduity, and fidelity, the most trusted and powerful person in Queen Elizabeth's privy council. Here, fresh from his frets with the rash Essex, the old wily statesman pondered over the fate of Mary of Scotland, or strove for means to foil Philip of Spain and his armada. Here also lived his eldest son, Sir Thomas Cecil, subsequently the second Lord Burley, and Earl of Exeter, who died 1622, whose daughter married the heir of Lord Chancellor Hatton, the dancing chancellor. Burley Street replaced the old house in 1678, when Salisbury Street was built. The Little Adelphi Theatre was opened in 1806, under the name of the Sans Souci, by Mr. John Scott, a celebrated color-maker, famous for a certain fashionable blue dye. The entertainments, optical and mechanical, were varied by songs, recitations, and dances, the proprietor's daughter being a clever amateur actress. Its real success did not begin till 1821, when Pierce Egan's dull and rather vulgar book of London low life, Tom and Jerry, was dramatized, Wrench as Tom, Reeve as Jerry. Subsequently, Power, the best Irishman that trod the boards in London, appeared here in melodrama. In 1826, Terry and Yates became joint lessees and managers. Ballantyne and Scott backed up Terry, Sir Walter being always eager for money. Scott eventually had to pay £1,750 for the speculative printer, he seems from the outset to have entertained fears of Terry's failure. Here, Keeley, too, made his first hit as Jemmy Green. In 1839, Mr. Rice, the original Jim Crow, was playing at the Adelphi. This Mr. Rice was an American actor who had studied the drolleries of the Negro singers and dancers, especially those of one Jim Crow, an old boatman who hung about the wharfs of Vicksburg, the same town on the Mississippi that has lately stood so severe a siege. He initiated among us Negro tunes and Negro dances. This was the fatal beginning of those Negro entertainments, falsely so-called. In 1808, Mr. Matthews gave his first entertainment, the Mail Coach Adventures at Hull. Mr. James Smith had strung together some sketches of character and written for him those two celebrated comic songs, The Mail Coach and Bartholomew Fair. In 1818, Mr. Matthews, unfortunately for his peace of mind, sold himself for seven years to a very sharp practiser, Mr. Arnold, of the Lyceum, for £1,000 a year, liable to the deduction of £200, fine, for any non-appearance. This becoming unbearable, Mr. Arnold made a new agreement by which he took to himself 40 pounds every night 
and shared the rest with Mr. Matthews, who also paid half the expenses. The shrewd manager made £30,000 by this first speculation. Rivaling Mr. Dibdin, the wonderful mimic appeared in plain evening dress, with no other apparent preparation than a drawing-room scene, a small table covered with a green cloth and two lamps. His first entertainment included Fond Barney the Yorkshire Idiot and The Song of the Royal Visitors, full of droll Russian names. In 1819, he produced The Trip to Paris. In 1820, he brought out The Country Cousins, with the two celebrated comic songs The White Horse Cellar and Oh, What a Town, What a Wonderful Metropolis both full of the most honest and boisterous fun. In 1821, Peake wrote for him the Polly Packet, introducing a caricature of Major Thornton, the great sportsman, as Major Longbow. The entertainment was called Earth, Air, and Water, and contained the song of The Steamboat. In 1824, Mr. Matthews gave his trip to America with Yankee songs, Negro imitations, and that fine bit of pathos, Mr. Mallet at the Post Office. In 1825 appeared his memorandum book, and in 1826 his Invitations, with the ruined Yorkshire gambler Harry Arderley, and a civic water party. In 1828 he opened the Adelphi Theatre in partnership with Mr. Yates, playing The Drunken Tinker in Mr. Buckstone's May Queen, and singing that prince of comic songs, The Humors of a Country Fair, written for him by his son Charles. Mr. Moncrief wrote his Spring Meeting for 1829, and Mr. Peake his Comic Annual for 1830. In 1831, his son Charles aided Mr. Peake in producing an entertainment, and again in 1832. In 1833, his health began to fail. He lost much money in bubble companies, and had an action brought against him for £30,000. In 1833, Mr. Peake and Mr. Charles Matthews wrote the At Home. Subsequently, the great mimic went to America, whence he returned in 1838, only to die a few months after. Lee Hunt praises Mr. Matthews' valets and old men, but condemns his nervous restlessness and redundance of bodily action. While Munden, Liston, and Fawcett could not conceal their voices, Matthews rivaled Bannister in his powers of mimicry. His delineation of old age was remarkable for its truthfulness and variety. Lee Hunt confesses that, till Matthews acted Sir Fretful Plagiary, he had ranked him as an actor of habits and not of passions, and far inferior to Bannister and Doughton. But the extraordinary blending of vexation and conceit in Sheridan's caricature of Cumberland proved Matthews, Mr. Hunt allowed, to be an actor who knew the human heart. In 1820, Hazlitt criticized Matthew's third entertainment, The Country Cousins, a melange of songs, narrative, ventriloquism, imitations, and character stories. He had left Covent Garden on the ground that he had not sufficiently frequent opportunities for appearing legitimate comedy. The severe critic says... Mr. Matthews shines particularly neither as an actor nor a mimic of actors, but his forte is a certain general tact 
and versatility of comic power. You would say he is a clever performer. You would guess he is a cleverer man. His talents are not pure, but mixed. He is best when he is his own prompter, manager, performer, orchestra, and scene shifter. Hazlitt then goes on to accuse his subject of a want of taste, of his gross and often superficial surprises, and of his too restless disquietude to please. Take from him, says Hazlitt, his odd shuffle in the gate, a restless volubility of speech and motion, a sudden suppression of features, or the continued repetition of a cant phrase with unabated vigor, and you reduce him to almost total insignificance. It should be said that his shuffle was rather a limp. As a mimic of other actors, the same writer says Matthews often failed. He gabbled like Inkledon, entangled himself like Tate Wilkinson, croaked like Suet, lisped like Young, but he could make nothing of John Kemble's expressive silver-tongued cadences. He blames him more especially for turning nature into pantomime and grimace, and dealing too much with worn-out topics, like cockneyisms, French blunders, or the ignorance of country people in stagecoaches, Margate hoys and Dover packet boats. In another place, the severe critic, who could be ill-tempered if he chose, blames Matthews for many of his songs for his meager jokes, dry as scrapings of shabsugar cheese, and for his immature ventriloquism. His best imitations, says Hazlitt, were founded on his own observation, and on the absurd characteristics of chattering footmen, drunken coachmen, surly travelers, and garrulous old men. His old Scotchwoman, with her pointless story, was a portrait equal to Wilkie or Teniers, as faithful, as simple, as delicately humorous, with a slight dash of pathos, but without one particle of caricature, vulgarity, or ill-nature. His best broad jokes were these, the abrupt proposal of a mutton-chop to a man who was seasick, and the convulsive marks of abhorrence with which he received it, and the tavern beau who was about to swallow a lighted candle for a glass of brandy and water as he was going drunk to bed. Poor Wiggins, the fat, henpecked husband, who, unwieldy and helpless, is pursued by a rabble of boys, was one of his best characters. Hazlitt mentions also, as a stroke of true genius, his imitation of a German family, the wife grumbling at her husband returning drunk, and the little child's paddling across the room to its own bed at its father's approach. Terry, who in 1825 joined partnership with Yeats and died in 1829, was a quiet, sensible actor, praised in his Mephistopheles, and even in King Lear. His Peter Teasel was inferior to Farron's, and his Dr. Cantwell came after Doughton's. Yeats was born in 1797. He made his debut at Covent Garden as Iago in 1818. He was very versatile and triumphed alternately in tragedy, comedy, farce, and melodrama. A critic of 1834 says, Mr. Yeats is occasionally capital and always respectable. In burlesque, he is excellent, but a little too broad and given to an exaggeration which is sometimes vulgar. He is a better buck than fop, and a better rake than either. 
were he more refined. John Reeve was another of the Adelphi celebrities. He was born in 1799 and was originally a clerk at a Fleet Street banking house. He appeared first at Drury Lane in 1819 as Sylvester Daggerwood. His imitations were pronounced perfect, and he soon rose to great celebrity in broad farce, burlesque, and the comic parts of melodrama. Lord Grizzle, Bombastes, and Pedrillo were favorite early characters of his. He was considered too heavy for Caleb Quotum, and not quiet enough for Paul Pry. Liston excelled him in the one, and Harley in the other. Benjamin Webster was born at Bath in 1800. He took the management of the Haymarket in 1837 and built the new Adelphi Theatre in 1858. In melodrama, Mr. Webster excels. His best parts are Lavater, Tartuffe, Belfagor, Triplet, and Pierre Leroux in The Poor Stroller. He is excellent in poor authors and strolling players, and achieved a great triumph in Mr. Watts Phillips' play of the dead heart. He is energetic and forcible, but he has a bad hoarse voice, and he protracts and details his part so elaborately as often to become tedious. In 1844, Madame Celeste, who in 1837 had appeared at Drury Lane on her return from America, was directress of the Delphi. She then left and took the Lyceum, which she held until the close of 1860-61. to The old Adelphi closed in June 1858. Although a small and incommodious house, it had long earned a special fame of its own. It began its career with True Blue Scott and went on with Rodwell and Jones during the Tom and Jerry mania when young men about town wrenched off knockers, knocked down old men who were paid to apprehend thieves, and attended beggars' suppers. Under Terry and Yates, Buckstone and Fitzball produced pieces in which T.P. Cook, O. Smith, Wilkinson, and Tyrone Power shone. This actor was drowned in 1841. There also flourished Wright, Paul Bedford, Mrs. Yates, and Mrs. Keeley in The Pilot, The Flying Dutchman, The Wreck Ashore, Victorine, Rory O'More, and Jack Shepard the last of these a play, to be branded as a demoralizing apotheosis of a clever thief. In 1844, Mr. Webster became proprietor of the Adelphi, and Madame Celeste, a good melodramatic actress, became the directress. Then was brought out that crowning triumph of the theater, The Green Bushes, by Mr. Buckstone, a tremendous success. Among the greatest hits at the Adelphi have been of later years, Mr. Watts Phillips' Dead Heart, a powerful melodrama of the French Revolution period, Miss Bateman's Leah, an American-German play of the old school, and The Colleen Bawn, Mr. Boussicot's clever dramatic version of poor Gerald Griffin's novel, full of fine melodramatic situations. The old townhouse of the Earls of Bedford stood on the site of the present Southampton Street, and was taken down in 1704 in Queen Anne's reign. It was a large house with a courtyard before it, and a spacious garden with a terrace walk. Before this house was built, the Bedford family lived at the opposite side of the Strand, in the Bishop of Carlisle's Inn, which in 1598 
was called Russell or Bedford House. In 1704, the family removed to Bloomsbury. The neighboring streets were christened by this family. Russell Street bears their family name, and Tavistock Street their second title. Garrick lived at number 36 Southampton Street before he went to the Adelphi. In 1755, to give himself some rest, he brought out a magnificent ballet pantomime called the Chinese Festival, composed by the great Novaire. Unfortunately for Garrick, war had just broken out between England and France, and the pit and gallery condemned the popish dancers, in spite of King George II and the quality. Gentlemen in the boxes drew their swords, leaped down into the pit, and were bruised and beaten. The galleries looked on and pelted both sides. The ladies urged fresh recruits against the pit, and each fresh levy was mauled. The pit broke up benches, tore down hangings, smashed mirrors, split the harpsichords and storming the stage, cut and slashed the scenery. The rioters then sallied out to Mr. Garrick's house, now Eastie's Hotel, in Southampton Street, and broke every window from basement to garret. Mrs. Oldfield, who lived in Southampton Street, was the daughter of an officer, and so reduced as to be obliged to live with a relation, who kept the Mitre Tavern in St. James's Market. She was overheard by Mr. Farquhar, reading a comedy and recommended by him to Sir John Van Brew. She was excellent as Lady Brute and also as Lady Townley. She died in 1730. Her body lay in state in the Jerusalem chamber and was afterwards buried in the abbey. Lord Hervey and Bub Doddington supported her pall. Her corpse, by her own request, was richly adorned with lace, a vanity which Pope ridiculed in those bitter lines, One would not sure be ugly when one's dead, and Betty give this cheek a little red. In 1712, Arthur Mainwaring, in his will, describes this street as New Southampton Street. Bedford Street was first so named in 1766 by the paving commissioners. The lower part of the street was called Half Moon Street. After the fire of London, it became fashionable with mercers, lacemen, and drapers. The lower part of the street is in the parish of St. Martin's in the Fields, the upper in that of St. Paul's, Covent Garden. In the overseer's accounts of St. Martin's, mention is made of the names of persons who were fined in 1665 for drinking on the Lord's Day at the Half Moon Tavern in this street, also for carrying linen, for shaving customers, for carrying home venison or a pair of shoes, and for swearing. Sir Charles Sedley and the Duke of Buckingham were fined by the Puritans in 1657 to 58 for riding in their coaches on that day. Ned Ward, the witty publican in his London Spy, mentions the Half Moon Tavern in this street. On the eastern side of the same street, in 1645, lived Remigius van Limpet, a Dutch painter, who, at the sale of King Charles's pictures, bought Van Dyck's florid masterpiece, now at Windsor, of the king on horseback. After the restoration, he was compelled to disgorge it. Had this grand picture been the portrait of any better king, Cromwell would not have parted with it. 
The witty, bulky Quinn lived here from 1749 to 1752. It was in 1749 that this great tragedian, reappearing after a retirement, performed in his friend Thompson's posthumous play of Coriolanus. Good-natured Quinn had once rescued the fat, lazy poet from a sponging house. It was about this time that the great elocutionist was instructing Prince George in recitation. When, afterwards as king, he delivered his first speech successfully in Parliament, the actor exclaimed triumphantly, Sir, it was I taught the boy. On the west side, at number 15, lived Chief Justice Richardson, the humorist. He died in 1635. The interior of the house is ancient. Sir Francis Kyneston, an esquire of the body to Charles I, and author of Leoline and Sadanus, lived in this street in 1637. He died in 1642. The Earl of Chesterfield, one of Grammont's gay and heartless gallants, lived in Bedford Street in 1656. In the same street, in his old age, at the house of his son, a rich silk mercer, dwelt Kyneston, the great actor of Charles II's time, so well known for his female characters. Thomas Sheridan, the lecturer on elocution, the son of Swift's friend, and the father of the wit and orator, lived in Bedford Street, facing Henrietta Street, and the south side of Covent Garden. Here Dr. Johnson often visited him. One day, says Mr. White, we were standing together at the drawing-room window expecting Johnson, who was to dine with us. Mr. Sheridan asked me could I see the length of the garden. No, sir. Take out your opera glass, then. Johnson is coming. You may know him by his gait. I perceived him at a good distance, walking along with a peculiar solemnity of deportment and an awkward, measured sort of step. At that time, the broad flagging at each side of the streets was not universally adopted, and stone posts were in fashion to prevent the annoyance of carriages. Upon every post, as he passed along, I could observe he deliberately laid his hand, but, missing one of them, when he had got to some distance, he seemed suddenly to recollect himself, and, immediately returning back, carefully performed the accustomed ceremony and resumed his former course, not omitting one till he gained the crossing. This, Mr. Sheridan assured me, however odd it might appear, was his constant practice, but why or wherefore he could not inform me. This eccentric habit of Johnson, the result of hypochondriacal nervousness, is also mentioned by Boswell. Richard Wilson, the great landscape painter, red-nosed Dick, as he was familiarly called, was a great ally of Mortimer the English Salvatore. They used to meet over a pot of porter at the Constitution, Bedford Street. Mortimer, who was a coarse joker, used to make Dr. Arne, the composer of Rule Britannia, who had a red face and staring eyes, very angry by telling him that his eyes looked like two oysters just opened for sauce and put on an oval side dish of beetroot. Close to the Lowther Arcade, there is one of those large cafes that are becoming features in modern London. It was started by an Italian named Carlo Gatti, there you may see refugees of all countries, playing at dominoes, sipping coffee, 
or groaning over the wrongs of their native land and their own exile. No music is allowed in this large hall because it might interfere with the weekday services at St. Martin's Church. End of chapter 8, part 3. Recording by Linda Johnson.